0: Welcome to Bloom, a conversations podcast about anything and everything. I'm lucky to be joined today by Dr. Hugo Slim, who's speaking with me all the way from sunny London, nearly 17,000 kilometres and several oceans and continents away from me here in Melbourne. Dr. Slim is an academic, policy advisor, and senior executive within the humanitarian and NGO sectors. He recently completed a five-year term as head of policy and humanitarian diplomacy at the international committee of the Red Cross. Prior to this, Hugo worked as a senior research fellow within the Institute of Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict at the University of Oxford. His scholarly work has maintained a consistent focus on the experience of civilians in conflict situations. Hugo has also had extensive experience in the field as a frontline humanitarian worker, working across Africa and the Middle East for Save the Children and the United Nations. In this conversation, we cover Hugo's reflections on a lifetime of working in and thinking about both the humanitarian sector and ethics major developments in humanitarian law and warfare over the last five years, the new ethical landscape that COVID-19 has brought about, and COVID-19's impact on humanitarian relief work in conflict zones. So, Hugo, thank you so much for joining me tonight. It's a great honour and privilege to be speaking with you. It's a pleasure. Great to see you, Nick. So, for our listeners who may not be as familiar with you and your work, could you please provide an overview of your life and career to date?
1: Yeah, well, I'm British, and um, I was raised largely in the UK and uh, went to university. And when I left university, I um, joined Save the Children. So I joined Save the Children UK and I worked for a year as a volunteer in Morocco with disabled children. And then I transferred over to Sudan and Ethiopia into the wars and famines there. And I worked for three more years there with Save the Children and then the United Nations as well. And then I came back and, I worked for Save the Children in the UK a bit on their Middle East desk, became a senior research officer with them. And then in 1994, because this is ages ago, I started in 1983, and this is Mm -hmm. 1994, then I um, got offered a job to help people start a very practical master's program for humanitarian workers at Oxford Brookes University. So I did that for 10 years and became an academic and, and loved teaching and writing And um, then after that, I went to Geneva and went to the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue. I felt I didn't want to be an academic all my life and didn't want to wake up in 20 years time in comfortable Oxford suddenly saying, oh, I meant to do something else. So I went to Geneva and did four years as the wonderful title Chief Scholar at the Center for Humanitarian Dialogue, which was very small and new then. And there I worked on the protection of civilians and produced a couple of uh, manuals and and a book and worked a bit on peace policy and mediation policy and mediation training. And then I went into business for four years and tried to advise big companies like Rio Tinto and British Petroleum, BP um, and G4S on um, human rights and things like that. And then I went back to academia in Oxford um, where I focused on humanitarian ethics um, at the Institute of Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict, um, and then I went to ICRC as Head of Policy and Humanitarian Diplomacy, where I've been for the last five years, and then on Monday I start back at Oxford again,
0: at oh, the Blabathic
1: School, in my old research team in the Institute of Ethics, Law and Armed Conflict. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, so, is, in it many first, ways, is it your first week, this week, is it?
1: It'll be, it'll be next week, June next August, week. Okay. So in many ways, it's a hugely erratic and unreliable career.
0: (laughs) I think the best careers are. But um, I first got the idea for this interview uh, when I stumbled across a piece he wrote called Reflections of a Humanitarian Bureaucrat. Uh, So one of the most wistful or nostalgic images uh, was your reference to being an enthusiastic 22-year-old theology graduate setting off to Morocco with a suitcase, typewriter and guitar. Can you take us back to that time? So what inspired you to humanitarian action? And what were you doing in Morocco with Save the Children?
1: Yeah. Well, first of all, we didn't call it humanitarian action in those days because that was still a sort of French-Swiss term, which was fairly narrowly used by ICRC and MSF, really, and UNHCR. So we just talked about relief and development work, largely development work. And... I wanted to do it because I'd, um, I'd come from a sort of international you know, colonial imperial British family. So a lot of them have lived their lives and careers overseas in India and um, the Middle East. And so I wanted to get out into the world too. Felt I'd been in England far too long. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, I, I wanted to do something I felt was good and involved um, working with and helping people and a bit of adventure. So off I went, but I was in a complete minority then. It wasn't very common. Yeah. Um, You know, a few people volunteered, you know, temporarily for a year or two, and then would go back and and go into the mainstream work. But there wasn't this sort of humanitarian culture then. There was a much more sort of political activist culture. Mm. Um, And I was, I think I was one of, you know, of all my sort of peers that I knew at university. I think I was the only one that went off and did this, really. Maybe there were a couple of others I, I didn't, you know, know very well. So it wasn't the same quite then.
0: Right. So what were some of the formative moments uh, from your 10 years in the field with Save the Children and the United Nations? So when you were just setting out in your career, uh, and I suppose also, how did you make a call about who to help and, and where?
1: Well, I'm not sure I really made those calls. I just got <laughs> sent to places because I was young. Um, but um, in Morocco, I think, you know, it was um, a residential school for disabled children from which we, you um, operated a sponsorship scheme for disabled children as well across northern parts of Morocco, trying to get them equipped and um, integrated into mainstream schooling, the ones that weren't with us in the residential school. So the thing I really learned and experienced there was a sort of face-to-face contact with people um, and learning how to work with them, um, try and understand them um, and get alongside them i suppose in a way um and i suppose at that age you're also beginning to understand your your sort of strengths and weaknesses as a person um you know i'd been sort of conventionally educated and i knew i could sort of do exams and things like that but i wasn't sure at all whether i could be tested in a difficult situation or um work in a different culture um and so i learned those things a bit and i suppose i you know i learned also to respect um, different cultures and different places and different histories, where human societies have evolved differently through different challenges, different landscapes, etc.
0: Yeah, wonderful.
1: Um, yeah, I mean, moving over into the, the famines in Africa, it's a much more full-on sort of humanitarian role. So then it really is quite testing, and you're, you're seeing a lot of suffering in a very different way—rather um, immediate suffering. Um, that was testing too and, and physically exhausting as a lot of frontline humanitarian work is.
0: Where were you in Africa, sorry?
1: So I started in a refugee camp on the Sudanese Ethiopian border where lots of, you know, hundreds of thousands of Tigrayans were pouring in from famine and war in Northern Ethiopia. Mm-hmm. Then I went to the top of Ethiopia into Northern Wallo, what was called Wallo then, to Koram, which was a very famous camp at that time because it was the sort of epicenter of where the media story had broken about the Ethiopian famine. Um, and I worked in um for 18 months after that. Um, so that was really my sort of relatively small sort of, you know, sharp end period.
0: Yeah, yeah. And so Reflections of a Humanitarian Bureaucrat, the piece I mentioned before, um, isn't simply filled with wonderful, you know, nostalgic remembrances as I might have given the impression of to our listeners, but you compare the charismatic age of humanitarian action with the sector's contemporary bureaucratization, identifying eight key challenges that you've observed um, over the last couple of decades. So can you expand on some of those challenges that the sector is facing and reflect on ultimately what drove you to write the piece?
1: Yeah, I mean, first of all, I suppose you know there's, there's there's nothing wrong with bureaucratizing you know you don't have to stigmatize the term you can say it's a a really good thing that um a public good is getting bigger and extending its reach and everything you know in the same way that you know with the national health service yeah we would say today we're very glad that it did expand deepen widen and bureaucratize in a certain way but i think there are always challenges there are challenges when things are too small and, and start-uppy and charismatic um, and there are challenges when they're bureaucratic as well i you know there's, um i think one of the things that's happened you know over my career is that humanitarian aid has become much much more elaborate so you know humanitarian workers now and humanitarian agencies are really expected to do everything and take account of everything. And that's grown in parallel with sort of welfareism, the welfare state, the very interventionist state in, in Western democracy as well. Um, so they're meant to have handles on every sector from food, agriculture, health, um, you know economics, income. Um, they're meant to have a handle on every dimension of social difference, you know through gender and um, class and ethnicity and everything it's quite it's it's an elaborate field now, trying to do everything and do it well so that's that's very striking mm. um I think these organizations are very big now, so they are bureaucratic in the strict sense that they have layered hierarchies um and so there are layers and layers of decision making and you you know you can spend your whole day in a headquarters and possibly even a a field office just you know trying to win against your colleagues and trying to get things done <laughs> through the system of your organization you know, without even raising your head to look outside. And that's, I think, a difficult thing. And to try and reduce those layers would be a good thing. Um, overpopulation, a lot of these organizations have a lot of people because there's no doubt. And I've, I've noticed that, You know, in my career, um, when a new problem is identified, um, the response is, oh, we need to hire new people to deal with that problem. And, you know, almost every evaluation, if it's not, you know, cutting an organisation because of budget problems, it's saying, right, we need to develop a new team to meet these new problems. So you get an extraordinary overpopulation in, in organisations too, which creates a sort of churn and um, slowing down of its own um, challenge and a sort of internal velocity, which um, can distract from an external velocity, I think, which is which is a shame.
0: Mm. Um
1: The other thing I think that's always frustrating for bureaucrats, um, depending on where you are in the organization, is that you have this big task impact distance, this big distance between what you're doing in your day job, usually on your screen these days and in endless meetings, and an eventual impact a result, a product, a change in someone's life from all that you're doing and I think that can be um you know some people are very gifted and they can see how getting all these things right over weeks and months will deliver a massive impact in the end some people find it more frustrating um they just talk about being in endless meetings all the time because mm. it's it's not clear that how they're changing things for people um on the ground and so that, can task, be, impact, distance.
0: Hmm? that can be quite innovating and sort of you know existentially I, I suppose troubling in a way as well you know because you think it is. I think there are a lot of your time. Troubled bureaucrats yeah mm. i have no doubt
1: <laughs> but there are probably a lot of existentially troubled people in small organizations being led by charismatic maniacs as well so you know it, it depends but you know organisations <laughs> led by by um difficult people as well
0: you know mm. indeed so yeah ultimately what what made you decide to write that piece
1: i think um I think largely that I was coming to the end of my time at the ICRC and I, you know, I hadn't worked in a big headquarters like that. The last time I'd worked in a big headquarters was in, say, the children in the 90s, when it had just upgraded from, you know, be working in a, an old girls school, which had been donated to it, and moved into a modern office block in London. And that was a big sort of culture shift, but we were still relatively small. We were probably still at headquarters of sort of 150 or 200 or something. Um, so working in ICRC headquarters, which was a thousand people um, with major big departments um, was a real, you know, a new experience for me as I knew it would be. And it played to some of my strengths and a lot of my weaknesses. So it's, you know, it's, it was that I wanted to reflect on. I also wanted to see, um, You know, I I worry, you know, are these big organizations becoming full of vested interests, full of a preoccupation with their own survival rather than survival of people um, in their mission statements? I wanted just to look a little bit and just say, look, your generation has grown up with these big organizations. It wasn't always like that. Um, And, you know, there are choices in the kind of organizations we form, make and run.
0: Hmm. And I think one of the things that prompted me to get in touch and have this interview is that I think a lot of your writing um, and publications is really, really original um, and charismatic, you might say, um, but it's sort of outside a lot of the, you know, the corporate speak um, or the boilerplate sort of language that's used uh, to describe these kinds of issues. So, yeah, I mean, do you want to reflect on that? And I suppose the...
1: Well, I think it comes from two things. First of all, I don't have a discipline. So when I became an academic, you know, all I had was a theology degree. So I, I hadn't been schooled and apprenticed in an academic discipline full of jargon. And I rather decided not to sort of join one um, and stick to writing about values and ethics and organizations. But also I was very conscious always when I became an academic, because I'd only recently stopped being, you know, An operational person, that they were my audience. I wanted to write for people who were doing what I had been doing. I wasn't particularly interested in writing for the academy. Um, And so that I think means I'm I want to write simply and accessibly. Also, I don't think jargon helps very much because you know you automatically adopt a language which the majority of the world don't know. So you exclude people enormously and you end up with a very small readership. Um and I could learn from different academic discussions going on, but I've always wanted to put them into ordinary English, if I mm-hmm. could, and talk to people way beyond university life and the academy.
0: Yeah, but also the the humanitarian sector as well. I think as
1: well. I suppose I just think jargon's unhelpful and you all end up you know, nodding your head because you hear the jargon and you think, oh, he must be right because he's using the jargon. I actually think, what's he on about? No idea. You know, so I just don't agree with that kind of writing. I think communication has to be real. And um, that's what I try and do. But there are lots of other people that mm-hmm. write. Also, you know, I'm terribly lucky because I write in English. and You know, English is a majority language in those professions. Mm-hmm. And. You know, I so admire people I work with at the ICRC who were uh, operating in four languages. And, you know, when they were operating in English, it was, you know, maybe their second or third language or whatever. And, yeah. and you know, I don't have that challenge. So I think it's an obligation on me to write simple English and clear English. And I also happen to admire George Orwell. He was a British writer. He's well known for his, his sort of dystopian novel, 1984. Mm. But actually, his biggest contribution was as an essayist. And um, he writes beautiful, clear English. They often say he writes the best English, and I think we have to write like that. It's you know, if we're privileged enough to have the language and use it, we should write it excessively.
0: Yeah. yeah. So you also uh, are full of praise in in your writing for the energy, courage, and judgment of young people, referencing them as the great change makers and risk takers. And you also remark that some large humanitarian organisations um, don't necessarily. Um, you know, encourage young people to, to sort of be right out in front in terms of innovations or, or leading on particular things. So what would it look like if humanitarian organisations and other um, bureaucracies and other organisations really allowed young people to flourish in a way that you suggest that they sometimes are unable to?
1: Well, I think it'd be great. Um, but I think, you know, it's not an either or thing. I, I made very clear in the piece that actually the, you know, the gold is made when you have young people using their initiative, their fearlessness, their first sight of the world and you had older people using their wisdom and their sort of umpteenth sight of the world. So I think you've got to have it combined. But you you know I think every organization must let its young people fly and thrive because you know that's how they're going to learn, that's how they're going to bring new influences into the into the business, into the organization, into the you know caring work. Um, you know, they in many parts of the world young people are a big majority you know, across Africa and, and parts of Asia and things. So, you know, I think it's very important that we realize that they're able. It's also interesting in every crisis, you know, in, in, in periods when when a society is not particularly a crisis, it tends to develop these bureaucracies, which then become layered, very hierarchical, and mm. old people are in charge and they make sure it stays that way. The moment you have a real crisis, young people have to go to the fore. And it's always very interesting, you know, sometimes if you read, military history you read about you know colonel so-and-so and and major so-and-so who led some great battle for the australian army or something and they were 25 or 24 you know majors at that time were 24 25 and a lot of colonels were 28
0: Mm. 29
1: and that's a sort of military example but in a lot of crises, and you see it in the covid crisis now young people are coming to the fore so you know they're not feeling as vulnerable as older people in this crisis because of the the pattern of a disease and who it tends to kill, um, and they're out there organizing mutual aid organizations, carrying you know relief to people all over the world, and that's wonderful. That's what we'd expect, and that energy and creativity should should be kept by organizations um, at all times. I think, yeah. not just in crisis.
0: Yeah, wonderful. And if we can make a shift to your academic work, um, just like to maybe talk about um, your consistent focus throughout your career on civilian experience in war. So most notably through the book, Killing Civilians, Method, Madness and Morality in War. Can you reflect on why that text made such an impact and perhaps uh, explain your idea of the seven spheres of civilian suffering? I realise it's not a very (laughs) short question, but... Well, I am preoccupied
1: with the civilian experience, I think. Probably for a couple of reasons. I mean, first of all, because it was civilians I saw as a young man suffering first. I wasn't on a battlefield watching armies fight and seeing soldiers get wounded. I was on, you know, what happens when that happens somewhere else and and refugees pour over a border and they die because of the war. They're killed by war, not in war in a sense. And so I was preoccupied with civilian experience in that way because it was the one I had. I'd also grown up in a very military family where um you know there's a sort of real as you know sort of death and um comrade cult and you're constantly going to memorial services to remember the dead and to remember the soldiers that have died and in britain that's that's a huge thing and you're you know gathering around these things remembering soldiers who died mm. and it's striking that we never really have the same structures of memorial for civilians who died and of course many more civilians died in world war ii um, and still die today in war than armed combatants. Mm. So, you know, I think there's a huge asymmetry there in the way we focus on, you know, the the young men going to war. Um, and they're not necessarily the people who suffer most in war, even though they suffer terribly. So there was that too. I think the other reason I wrote it is that at that time in the 90s, you know, there was a you know, feeling that the Cold War was over and there was a unipolar world and, Consensus around what was right and wrong and that human rights and everything and international humanitarian law was back And we were all going to obey it and of course people weren't and so there were people murdering civilians and raping them and, and um, destituting them all over West Africa and um, in Europe in the Balkan Wars and in, in Central Asia and and people were just saying, you know, you mustn't kill civilians, it's against the law, you must stop, you must stop killing civilians, stop killing civilians, and as if that somehow would work. And it was clear to me that these people were deliberately killing civilians, they were using this as a strategy, and they obviously therefore felt, um, A, it worked as a strategy of war, and B, ethically, it probably wasn't wrong in view of the importance of their cause as they would see it. So I thought that we can't just go on, ticking people off about it, we've got to go and really look at why people do it, the arguments they have for saying civilians are part of a war, they don't count as immune, and um, you know, in sort of Foucaidian terms, sort of unveil that logic and that discourse, Mm -hmm. and say, um, right, why do they do it? If we don't understand it, we can't argue with them, we can't predict what they're going to do, and we can't uh, protect civilians.
0: Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, there's a pretty direct line from your uh, areas of academic interest, which is quite extraordinary and unique in itself, uh, to your work um, at the ICRC, so the International Committee for the Red Cross, um, which is sort of directly involved in these issues. Um, So can you maybe speak a little bit about your role as Head of Policy and Humanitarian Diplomacy at the ICRC and, you know, reflecting on the unique nature of the ICRC as well?
1: Yeah, well, I had sort of known the ICRC for several years, you know, informally and, 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 you know, done talks for them, written for them, been on the editorial board of their, their excellent journal, their review. So I knew people there and I'd always been impressed by the sort of clarity of their ethics, if you like, and the clarity of their mission. Um, And of course, as you say, their unique role with this extraordinary access to all parties and, ideally, all civilians and wounded in, in war. So, um, you know, when the job of head of policy came up, I thought that would be fascinating. I wonder if that will work. And so I went for it and was lucky enough to get it. And mm-hmm. And what it involved was a bit of a shift in the ICRC's own strategy, in recent years they had always focused on law and operations and they had big structures for law and operations and sort of policy work which they had done a lot of around weapons and um, health and things like that um, was sort of bolted on and, and came up occasionally and was welcomed but there'd been a major decision that the best way to achieve the ICRC's um, humanitarian mission was to affect change through law um greater respect for the law through effective operations which save people's lives and through a a very concerted policy push which would try and influence the policies of states making war states engaging in humanitarian action and really try and you know do what a, a lot of agencies have always done which policy work and advocacy to change the policies around the big spend of money in the world, the big actions of armed forces, and therefore achieve humanitarian effect mm. um, by changing negative policies and encouraging good policies. So that's what we were tasked to do. And um, the Department of Law became the Department of Law and Policy. And I was asked to be head of policy. And that meant building up a team in Geneva um, and trying to develop you know, a model agile Effective policy work, so mm-hmm. slightly taking some of the um, deep Swiss rigor out of the policy process and the extraordinary commitment they have to um, representative democracy. You know, or, you know, where everybody has a say in everything. Um, so we did a bit of that and tried to keep pace with the policy debates around us. You know, on the climate, on SDGs, on everything. And um, it was fantastic five years. And then part of that is humanitarian diplomacy, which NGOs would call advocacy, um, which meant going around representing our positions to states in bilateral meetings, multilateral meetings all, all around the world, which was a fascinating
0: privilege. Sounds like a really extraordinarily varied uh, role. But I, I, I wonder, you referenced before, actually, about um, the sort of in- interesting relationship between you know governments, uh, NGOs, um corporate partners and also the people that you're ultimately trying to um uh, serve and and help Uh, how did you sort of find working um as part of a really really much bigger i guess jigsaw puzzle or sort of constellation of relationships between organizations sorry within the movement yeah within the movement within you know i suppose um in different settings as well well i think in terms of um you know the
1: ICLC is very determined to have its own mind and take its own position and then present that position. So it works very individualistically in some ways when it forms its own opinion Mm. and mind on a policy. And that's good, I think, for the ICRC, because it has to be neutral and very careful um, and constructive. So we often made policy as ourselves, as it were, but then we would try and link up and work closely with any government, Mm. any UN agency and other parts of the movement who, who shared those policies. And that's that's very exciting. And the ICRC is incredibly well networked. So you know, you know, for our policy and diplomatic work, we have eighty delegations around the world, and you know, many of them very strategically placed in, you know, P five capitals like you know, Beijing, Moscow, Paris, London, you know, Washington. Big regional delegations in Addis Ababa for the AU and um, New York for the UN and Jakarta, you for ASEAN. And, and so we're able to link up very effectively um, on the ground with people and cooperate there wherever we are and that's what we what we did
0: yeah. um,
1: so in a way Geneva needs to make good policy and listen to others and then drive it out to the delegations
0: yeah fantastic so what were some of the major developments in international humanitarian law and warfare um, in the last five years while you were at the helm well I
1: suppose um you know, two are, are very striking to me. Um, and of course I was never at the helm of law because that's that's run by a brilliant Australian, Helen Durham, so you, oh, know. Um, you know. And she was my boss and I was working to her on policy and then the head of law um, worked to her as well. So, you know, I think on IHL the things that were probably most striking were the urbanization of warfare and the um, the really important work of understanding what respect for ihl means in urban warfare you know the wars of the middle east in the last 10 15 years have seen massive return of aerial and artillery bombardment Mm -hmm. on um, largely civilian areas of cities and things so that became a huge preoccupation and i think the icrc has done very well there on on you know increasing people's awareness and um, specifying um, their obligations more exactly on urban warfare. The other big issue, of course, has been um, the question of new weapons. And that means artificial intelligence, robotic weapons, uh, cyber warfare. And that's been the other big shift that's been going on, you know, in sort of ICRC um, legal thinking and policy thinking. Um, and of course, it's a very difficult time to do that because states are not ready Um, to come to the table, because a lot of them want to win that arms race before they come and talk about artificial intelligence and cyber weapons and all these things. Mm. Um, But also, states are not getting on very well with each other at the moment. You know, we're back in a phase of great power politics, great power competition, and and global geopolitical contest, and that pans out regionally as well. So it's been a difficult time to get new norms and, and policies established on new weapons, but it's a major challenge. I suppose one of the other things that's been, you know, going along with those two, the the convention to, you know, prohibit the use of nuclear weapons has been very important. That has been rolling over the time that I was there. Um, and I hope it continues to roll and we get more and more signatories and ratifications on the nuclear ban treaty. And the other thing that was constantly going on, of course, was the challenge of, um, you know, finding a, a good and legal way of working between states' counterterrorism terrorism policies and laws and the continuing um, principles in IHL and the laws in IHL which say that humanitarian action must be allowed impartially um, and that organizations like the ICRC are able to talk to all parties in a conflict. So that was a constant running policy and diplomatic challenge, the counter-terrorism one as well.
0: Mm. So on that note, you've written a lot about the question of trust in humanitarian action from the perspective of vulnerable people, uh, government and corporate partners, and indeed trust between agencies. Uh, So, um, you know, in order for the ICRC to be effective, it does depend on trust. But there's been a bit of commentary of late about the declining trust we have in humanitarian organisations. And I wondered whether you might reflect on why that's the case and what practical things could be done to restore trust.
1: Well, I, I think, you know, again, I wouldn't, I wouldn't suggest there was a sort of golden age when everyone was trusted. I, you know, I don't think it's necessarily got worse. I think these things are usually, you know, constantly ambivalent and, and they change for various reasons. But certainly the, the you know, if I think back when I was working in Ethiopia, you know, I was constantly called a, an English spy, you know, there was, you know, and constantly hauled over the coals about it by communist party leaders in ethiopia so you know it's, it's not that we were trusted before and we're not now um, so i think what's changed now is is without doubt um, a couple of things and the first one of course is the sexual scandals um, around the ngo sector you know which eventually reached it in the way that the the me too movement and and you know the, the proper exposing of you know misogynistic patriarchal sexual um attitudes and habits in organizations also exposed the humanitarian sector and i think that therefore left led to a sort of element of disenchantment in that sector as well which people have had to work hard and they must work hard to um re trust on that so that was one of them i think the other one was an increasing feeling you know by people on the ground in africa and Asia and the Middle East, you know, who are just watching these huge Western organizations roll in with lots of money, and they're just saying, you know, hang on, what about us? Where's our agency in all this? Where's all this money going? How come you're deciding everything? Mm. And that's just the whole push towards localization, which you and the Australian Red Cross have have been so good at responding to mm. and, you know, changing your business model to. You know, recognize the importance of locally led humanitarian action. So a lot of that was, you know, just the same that, you know, why are the banks so big? You know, why are oil companies so big? Why the hell are aid companies so big? You know, (laughs) what are these guys doing? And where are we in all this? And I think that that was the second big, you know, concern from ordinary people watching yet another white Toyota with a logo on spin past their house and throw mud and you know dust in their face, you know.
0: Um, So no interview would be complete without a little segment on COVID-19 and the global pandemic. So how has COVID uh, impacted humanitarian relief work in conflict zones in particular? And what might be some of the lasting impacts um, of of this? And I'm thinking about, you know, impacting uh, crossing borders to reach people in need in particular.
1: Yeah. Yeah. So I think COVID, you know, has obviously affected humanitarian action in the way it's affected everything else. That you know that there are lockdowns in place, which make things very pe- difficult for people in need, and they make them very difficult for humanitarian agencies. So the whole challenge of working in a social distance way has to be um, addressed, and um, we have to achieve new ways of working. And you're seeing that, you know. So you're seeing distributions happening differently. You're seeing hospitals and clinics being managed differently. Um, and you know we're so lucky in a way with technology, and in the way that you and I are speaking now, that we can transfer cash to people if they've got mobile phones. We you know we don't have to be there all the time. Um, so there are ways that um, you know the, the system is having to change in the way it delivers and, and meets people. Um, but a lot of that is accelerating the technological change. We the digital transformation that was much talked about that we have in play already. I think in terms of, you know, going across borders, it just adds um, another another layer of problem. And the disease itself adds another layer of of problems on war-affected people who are already, you know, perhaps displaced, um, suffering from a lack of access to their markets anyway, um, you know, battling with another caseload of infectious diseases, whether that's malaria or, um, you know, other measles and other other conditions so it just adds another layer i think Mm. but the good thing is it could really transform power and relationships in humanitarian aid and we could see an acceleration of localization and locally led humanitarian action where at last a lot of these big organizations um, step alongside and accompany people in their own response rather than charge out front and drive an international response. So it'll need a nice balance of both, but there's there's difficulties and there's opportunities.
0: Yeah, and there are those silver linings, as you mentioned, which I think uh, a lot of people are trying to emphasise as well. Um, but can you reflect on the changed ethical landscape that all nations now find themselves in due to the emergency situation uh, that COVID-19 has kind of uh, necessitated? Mm-hmm. So as you've written about, hundreds of millions of people have lived in sort of equivalent emergency situations on a daily basis for decades be it through war epidemics famine and extreme poverty but it's a new sort of experience for many in the west in particular
1: yeah i think it's true in our own societies you know you in australia me in the uk i think you know um infectious diseases are bad for a bit um and of course we're the lucky couple of generations that have lived in this blip when we were worried about cancer and heart disease and we weren't worried about catching diseases in crowded shops or whatever that would kill us. Mm-hmm. And we're now back in that game of infectious diseases and that will change us. And, and what it means, of course, in terms of personal ethics is that we are, and it means this for humanitarian workers going into communities as well, we are potential carriers of diseases as well. So we can carry um, things that kill, um, not just stop them and everything like that. So that's mm. that's complicated and and requires a new element of responsibility in humanitarian work and a new element of responsibility in in our own um, role as citizens within society. We have to take responsibility for the fact we could hurt others um, by mm. infecting them. So that's a, a primary difference. I think um, the other thing we're going to have to get used to. Um, know a process that's always gone on which is sort of health and life rationing which we do array anyway around chronic diseases you know how much resources we put into public health and how much we put into caring for people with cancer or heart disease now we're having to make difficult ethical decisions of distribution and allocation of resources around how much are we going to save the economy and how much are we just going to save human lives um and these are these are hard you know, decisions to make, but we're going to have to make all those and understand them. And that leads to the third point really, is that we must, you know, whether this is a humanitarian organization working with the community or whether it's a government working with citizens in Australia or the UK, we have to have what the ethicists call a good deliberative culture. And that means we have to deliberate together. We have to think through these problems together. Um, We can't just have authoritarian solutions to them. We have to say, right, we've got a problem between, you know, opening up the economy again before we all go bankrupt and before millions of people lose access to money and jobs um, and risking health. Can we all agree somehow how are we going to do that? Can we accept the costs and um, et cetera? So we need a proper discursive um, political culture inside humanitarian organizations and with communities and inside our own societies. And that requires the last thing, which is honest and transparent leadership. We have to have leaders who are spelling out the problems, honestly, the difficult choices, owning them up, um, setting good examples themselves, and um, discussing with people and bringing those people with them and um, managing this crisis together.
0: Yeah, brilliant. Um, and just a couple more questions before we wrap up, but uh, this it might be more related to people who are familiar with the uh, Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, but I was wondering whether the you viewed, having worked at the ICRC for a number of years, whether the seven fundamental principles of the International Red Cross and Red Crescent movement, humanity, impartiality, neutrality, independence, voluntary service, unity and universality, were sufficient for meeting the challenges of the 21st century so is anything missing basically
1: yeah i think there's a good one. i think there's a good for the movement in particular for red cross and Red crescent people you would want them to focus on humanity you know their job is to think about human life and respect for the human being it's not their job to um you know decide what a just society looks like um they are you know working with a humanitarian mission much like a doctor might be um so that seems a good one impartiality must be right we must be fair, we must have no discrimination um, and exclusion of people in um, any crisis. And you know, we're already learning that certain groups of people, you know, poor people, ethnic minorities, certain people with underlying vulnerabilities in health, they're suffering more in COVID, old people. So we have to work impartially and work on the basis of need. Mm. As we always do, neutrality is important for the Red Cross and Red Crescent. You know, we have to um, respect governments, work with governments, um, but we should not just be, you know, organs of government. We should be working impartially and on a humanitarian um, goal. And independence as much as we can. You know, these are all difficult to achieve in practice, as you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but yes, we should try and be independent of policies. If governments are having policies that we think are wrong, we should, we should uh, make that clear and, and work for our own um, policies and um, you know, decision making. I think um, the one about voluntary service is really important today because, in a huge pandemic and the massive economic crisis that's going to follow it, everyone's gonna have to volunteer and help their neighbor and help others they've never met before Um, you know a state can't manage this stuff on its own mutual aid is going to be so important and it is already and we're all gonna have to be volunteers so being a volunteer is gonna have to be recognized as a as an important and valuable um, role to play and we're going to rely on them more than ever. Um, and of course, it'd be nice if we could be unified. The movement's not very good at it, um, but it can do it sometimes.
0: Mm. Cool. So your career seems to be unique because it's consistently combined the ongoing threads of policy, academia, field work, and uh, executive leadership and management in a global organisation, as we've covered today in this interview. So what value do you place on this kind of approach to, I suppose, work, but more um, significantly life.
1: You mean going from one to the other, going in and out? <laughs> yeah. oh. I think it's very bad for your pension. That's the mm. first thing I would say. You know, you're much better <laughs> off getting with of a job which has a pension and building that pension up. You know, when you keep chopping and changing, it's not always great. Yeah. Um, but for me, you know, it's about temperament. For me, I love doing it because I, you know, when I was operational, um, my brain kept saying, God, I want to take time to think about this. What are we really doing here? You know, what is the, you know, our purpose, you know? So while I was loading a truck, I wasn't necessarily thinking very hard about the truck. I was beginning to think more about what are we doing? So I needed to go back into a space and reflect. Um, but then, you know, when I was an academic for 10 years, I thought, I can't really stand up and teach people in a classroom if I haven't been anywhere for a bit, and if I haven't engaged in in, in real work for a bit, and if I'm just drawing on examples from 20 years ago. So, um, I felt the need to go back and learn again to refresh my teaching so um and i think you know the challenge of policy making um and being you know near that you know near the top of an organization is important because it reminds you that you know life is made from people making difficult decisions hmm. and um decisions are not always popular that don't always benefit everybody and you need to do that occasionally to remind yourself that when you write glib you know, recommendations at the end of a paper, or, a you know, evaluation report, you're, mm. you know, you're not sitting there smugly saying, well, you know, I, mean, I could do this, why don't they just get on and do it? Because you need to appreciate how difficult it is mm. to work and change things in the world, you know. Mm. So that's why I've done it. I've just gone in there out of the three things, because I have to. Um, I think a lot of people do it. I'm aware of a lot of people who remain primarily operational humanitarian workers who are deeply reflective and thinking, and they, they write things, they think, they, um, they they discuss, and they remain very reflective. And um, I think those are three parts of all of us, you know, acting, reflecting, and developing rules for action, which is essentially what policy is. So
0: that's in all of us, I think. Yeah, wonderful. And and so finally, what advice would you offer to young people setting out on a career in the humanitarian sector today, uh, perhaps with a suitcase, typewriter, and guitar in hand, given that there's often a lot of deliberation about striking that balance you've just described between reflection or education, time in the field, and ultimately working up through the hierarchy while focusing on the needs of those we're trying to help.
1: Well, you know, I think the great thing today, and I, and, you know, I perhaps should have done it myself years and years ago, is that you don't have to get a slow train you know, to Marrakesh or wherever to do this. And to be playing a useful important role which you could describe as humanitarian you know there's so much to do in our own societies and the world is now um you know full of every society has major challenges of poverty and injustice and um need human need so you don't have to go far you know it's on your doorstep as well so you know, this idea in the, the old days, you know, there was a slight feeling, oh, you're only really being a humanitarian if you go off and abroad and live this adventure. Um, that's a rather colonial fantasy an imperialist fantasy. And in fact, we can do things in our own communities that are, and most people do. Um, you know, when we were locked down here, we, we moved to London, got locked down immediately, so we didn't know anyone in the area we moved to. Oh, wow. And um, I started waving every morning to the chap across the road because he sort of get up about the same time as me and we'd open the sort of shutters at the same time and I began waving at him and we waved and then you know after a couple of weeks I went over and talked to him and we chatted
0: mm.
1: and you know I've been sitting here doing bugger all except the old webinar and writing a blog you know but this chap um, manages um, all the hearing impaired children and the deaf children in this part of London Extraordinary. and ensures that they have the equipment they need and the support they need to integrate into schooling. Now, that's a fantastic job. That's a profoundly humanitarian job. And he Mm. didn't have to get a a suitcase, a guitar and a train and head off to Morocco. Mm. And he's doing real things every day. And I'm not. (laughs) So my advice would be, don't feel you have to live this this global fantasy.
0: Mm.
1: Look down the street and um, you'll probably find an amazing
0: role there really wonderful message. So Hugo, thank you so much for being um, with me or not really with me sort of across the oceans. But thanks so much for joining me tonight on my podcast. It's been an absolute pleasure. uh, And good luck for your new role next week.
1: Well, thank you very much, Nick. And thanks for inviting me. And good luck to you too. And all in Australian Red Cross. I, I love being there. And good luck to you all.
0: Fantastic. Thank you so much.